0: This is The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again.
1: And welcome to The Human Side of Healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. You know, the CDC gave some guidance recently about its time, especially in high-impact areas to wear masks again. And I know people go, why do they keep changing their mind? It's the virus that keeps changing. We have the Delta variant. It's a very fluid situation. We're having to adjust and put up our defenses as best we can. We know masks work. How do we know? Just look at our very light flu season this year. And I think wearing masks are so important. And let me tell you why. Many people are not vaccinated, but I worry most about the group of people that aren't vaccinated that can't be vaccinated, our children under age 12. So think about this. If I wear a mask, I'm helping protect all children under the age of 12. Masking is something that we can all do together. We can do it as a collective action, and we can do it for all the right reasons. Steve, we're going to tell a story
2: again about some guinea pigs that we told way back at the beginning of the pandemic that perfectly illustrates from a scientific perspective how masks are so effective. Dr. Robert Haley is Professor of Internal Medicine and the Director of the Division of Epidemiology in the Internal Medicine Department at UT Southwestern Medical Center. He also spent about a decade at the CDC earlier in his career. Of many of the things that we've had on this show and we've talked about relative to COVID-19, this one just makes a lot of sense.
3: Guinea pigs are very much like humans, that they're very susceptible to covid And so they put two cages right next to each other with a little, very light breeze blowing from one cage to the next. And in the first cage, they put some guinea pigs that had COVID and became very sick. When the study was over, their lungs were examined, and they had severe lung pathology. The lungs were really kind of destroyed by by the virus. And then they put a second cage, you know, uh, next to it with healthy guinea pigs to see if they would become infected by the air coming from that first cage to the second. And sure enough, those second those guinea pigs, the healthy guinea pigs became infected. Almost all of them became very sick and uh, most of them died and, and then had severe lung pathology. Then they put basically a surgical mask material on the healthy guinea pigs cage sort of simulating putting a mask on the healthy people. And sure enough, a few of the guinea pigs got sick from the sick ones, but it took much longer for them to get sick, so their immune system had time to kick in and and protect them, and none of them died, and they had very mild illness and very mild pathology in their lungs. And then they did a third time, this time they put the mask material on the cages of the sick animals, okay? and repeated the experiment, and now the the healthy animals, only like a a tiny number of them got sick, and they were just mildly sick. The illness again was delayed, and there was no lung pathology in those. So what this proves beyond a doubt is that a mask is very efficient in protecting those if the, the sick person is masked it's protected by two ways. One, it makes you get less virus. You're exposed to less virus. And, and because you got a lower uh, number of viruses, your body is able to handle it. So you, so it takes longer for those viruses to to get through your lungs and make you sick. And so your immune system has time to respond. So you're going to have a milder infection. If you are masked or if the sick person around you is masked, you're going to have a... If you even get infected at all, you will get a less severe infection and you will survive it. It's when both are not masked, that we have these big spreader events, uh, like we've been seeing lately, where lots of people get sick and they're very sick for a long time. Uh, also, if you have it if, have a mask on, but it's not covering your nose, you are protecting those around you, but you're not protected. Because you breathe in through your nose and you affect others by, through your mouth, you see. So just having it on your mouth, you're doing a nice thing for those around you, but you're not protected. You're leaving yourself as a setup.
2: And because this is such a critical issue, we asked two other community-leading physicians to weigh in on this. First, Dr. Roberto De La Cruz. He is the executive vice president and chief clinical officer at Parkland Health and Hospital System.
4: For me, I think it's very essential um, for everybody who's not vaccinated to wear masks, um, just like uh, they were doing so in months ago. They, they should be wearing masks indoors and outdoors. And the main issue is that the prevalent uh, COVID uh, variant right now is highly contagious. Uh, it is present at higher concentrations in your bloodstream and stays uh, in the infected person's uh, body longer. So it is more contagious. And so being certainly in, in close spaces is very risky. And even if you're outside um, with people, I think it's very important for you to take a lot of precaution um, because you're stopping an exponential spread. Um, if you're vaccinated, you, you need to understand your risk tolerance. For example, I am vaccinated, but I'm also around healthcare providers. And for us, it's really important that we all stay healthy. And so I have started wearing my mask again uh, in, in my business setting because I think it's very important for us to be able to maintain you know leadership um, continuity. And also I have elderly uh, parents that are in their early 90s and I have worked very hard at protecting them uh, for the last year and a half. And I think this is a particularly risky moment for them even though they are vaccinated, the vaccine is highly protected against uh, coronavirus but the breakthrough infections that we're seeing are precisely in the frail um, elderly population or the population that has uh, significant additional illnesses and my parents fit both and so I've been
2: um, protecting them as
4: well and, and being very meticulous about who can visit and um, I'm wearing masks about around them
2: and next another familiar voice in Dallas-Fort Worth media Dr. John Carlo the president and ceo at Prism Health North Texas Steve
1: So Dr. Kahlo, why do you think the CDC reversed their position related to wearing masks if you're vaccinated? I think it's
5: unfortunately because of the Delta variant and what we can have seen its ability and how infectious this new variant is. And and keep in mind that thankfully, while the vaccine works very, very well, we're still seeing a few breakthrough infections. So we've got to move to the next step and make sure that we've got that additional protection in place because unfortunately we're seeing more and more cases today.
1: With these variants, do you think it could change again in the future?
5: You know, that's the other concern is we're now at the Delta variant. Uh, What's the next one on the list? And unfortunately, as we continue to see coronavirus freely circulating across the planet, the opportunity is almost endless that we're gonna have another variant introduced. And uh, the big fear is that we would lose uh, the protection that the vaccine is given us with uh, future variants.
2: And folks, with that, you have just heard from some of the top experts in this area in North Texas, physician community leaders. And we hope the message was clear and made sense. When we come back, we're going to talk about our kids going back to school. Under this pandemic, what is that going to look like? Dr. Kyle Olent joins us next from Methodist Health System to talk about it on the human side of healthcare.
0: This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again.
1: And welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. And we wanna talk about a topic that is so timely. It's time for kids to go back to school, and we want to talk to someone that can give us some answers related to going back to school, COVID-19, vaccines, etc. We're delighted to have with us Dr. Kyle Olent, who is a primary care physician. He is certified, or board certified, in both internal medicine and pediatrics at Methodist Health System. Dr. Olin, welcome to the show.
6: Thank you for having
1: me. You know, I know parents are anxious. Kids really need to get back to school, in-person school. What is your advice to parents as to what they need to think about and know as they prepare for their kids to return to school this fall?
6: Yeah, like you said, it's a timely question. You know, I think that the good thing that we've all kind of learned over the past year is is a lot of things that we've been able to teach children about just basic hygiene and and how to keep yourself healthy when you're out and about and, you know, washing hands, which really, you know, especially for young kids is a really important thing for them to learn. So in some ways we've already been preparing kids for kind of this transition for over a year now. I think that Probably my biggest thing about getting kids back to school is for the kids that are eligible for getting a COVID vaccine, I'm absolutely saying that that's the best way that we can get those kids ready to get back into the school environment um, in order to make sure that they're going to be safe when it comes to COVID. Uh, We've seen that there's been some, you know, increase in cases recently, and and I think all of us are, are a little bit nervous about that and just getting the kids vaccinated is probably the most important thing. I think that the other thing is, is really being able to understand, well, you know, what about when um, my child gets an exposure, um, if somebody in their school is is sick? What if somebody at home is sick or if my child starts getting symptoms? And, you know, when I talk to parents, the good news is, is that your school districts are really telling you and and they all have very good local guidelines um, that they they come up with and they're very upfront with parents you know if you've got parents that haven't been in the in-school environment i've talked to lots of parents that have in surrounding school districts Um, so you're going to be able to get that guidance from your school district and it's always important to you know touch base with your local pediatrician um, your family medicine doctor to see kind of hey Jimmy or, or Sally's gotten exposure. What should we do? Do they need to get tested? That kind of thing.
1: You know, if you have a child that comes home from school and starts displaying symptoms, running a little fever, not feeling well, and you suspect they may have a COVID 19 virus, as a parent, what should you do?
6: Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, when I have this this call into the office or if I do a telemedicine appointment regarding this, first thing to do is to make sure that your child is, is feeling okay and, and is not needing to go seek immediate medical attention, like at a hospital. Um, and that would be if they're having severe shortness of breath, they're not eating or drinking as well, or they're not you know, going to the bathroom as much as they usually do. But so long as the child is okay, um, and they're not needing to go to the hospital right away, first thing is to kind of protect everybody in the household and, and making sure if, especially if the child is above, you know, two years old and can put a mask on, Um, basically having everybody in the home start to wear a mask um, in order to try and protect and prevent spread of of a possible virus. And then as much as possible, trying to keep um, siblings or other family members away, um, especially for younger children, you can't really, as a parent, stay away from them because they need you for their basic, you know, eating and everything. But in order to, you know, kind of protect the other members, trying to keep the child, you know, relegated to one room is usually a good idea. As I mentioned, talking to your pediatrician as soon as possible. Um, The good news, well, at least in the Methodist system, we have rolled out you know, doing point-of-care testing for COVID-19, getting rapid results. Um, you know, In the community, there's, there's a lot of resources when it comes to retail pharmacies. Um, thankfully, over the last year and a half, we've gotten a lot of testing rolled out. So making sure that you, as soon as you're worried that your child might have been exposed, if they're having symptoms, talking to your pediatrician and kind of coordinating when to get tested, um, because if, if the child's not really having symptoms yet, let's say they just had an exposure, it may not be correct or, or the best idea to test them right away, rather to wait a couple of days and give them time to kind of see if they're going to develop symptoms um, before deciding to test. But I usually fall back on talking to the pediatrician or the family medicine doctor.
1: You know, you mentioned uh, vaccinating your children. Do you have any thoughts on potentially – when the age may be lowered, even lower than 12, you know, 12 years and over can get Pfizer now. But uh, do you think they'll lower that anytime soon?
6: Yeah. And that's, that's a really also timely question. I mean. As early as the early part of this year, I've been hearing that they have started to do studies looking at giving the uh, COVID-19 vaccine to children as young as six months old. And really kind of the probable next place that we're going to see the age limit decrease to is going to be to that four to six age range, basically your your school age children, um, in order to protect those children as they're going back into the school environment. You know, we talk about how important it is to get kids back to school and protecting them with the vaccine, I think, is very important. Um, And what I'm hoping to see is that they are, you know, going to be getting that guidance out and doing the testing necessary to to safely recommend this, hopefully by the end of this year. Um, I think time will tell,
1: obviously, before we're able to know for sure. You know, you mentioned wearing masks, and I know the American Academy of Pediatrics has consistently said, we want to get kids back to school as soon as possible. We want them to have in-person learning. We know it's important for their social skills, especially. With that said, they came out recently and said, we recommend when you go back to school, vaccinated or not, wear a mask. Any thoughts on that?
6: Yeah, I I think that, you know, the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics is really I think looking to to give that recommendation with the, an abundance of caution. Unfortunately, this is our first time with this pandemic of of having kids start to go back to school and having mixed of vaccination status potentially. Um so I think that we're looking as pediatricians to make a recommendation that makes the least harm um to children and and so yes, there is kind of the discomfort of wearing a mask. Um, but what I've found as a pediatrician is that children are, are incredibly resilient. Um, and even your children as young as two that are starting to wear a mask, once they get used to it, are very adaptable and, and really start to even sometimes enjoy wearing the mask. Um, so it, to me, I think it's it's a great recommendation in that, we're really just looking to do kind of the safe thing um, just because this is all still so new to us in order to make sure that those children are protected when they do go back to school.
1: You know, I talk to some parents and they say, Steve, look, I have gotten my vaccination. My husband has. I've gotten mine. But I just don't know if I'm going to vaccinate my kids. I've got, I've got a few concerns. Do you have any thoughts on that?
6: Well, I mean, and that's something I I address you know every day in the office, and I think the the first thing that I tell every single parent, um, besides the fact that really this is not me trying to push them to do anything that they're uncomfortable with, this is more so me giving you information so that you can make the best decision possible for your child. Um, the first thing that I always say is that, in my opinion, and in the opinion of of basically every single medical body out there, including the AAP the COVID vaccine is safe and effective. And I'll say it again for emphasis, it is safe and it is effective. And I think that's the most important thing that, you know, especially when you have a pediatrician or a family medicine doctor that you've known for a while and that you trust, is to just be able to hear that from somebody you trust that can say that, that it's a good vaccine In terms of what I see in terms of immune response, when somebody gets a vaccine, absolutely, Um, just like getting your flu vaccine or when you're a younger child getting childhood shots, it is very normal to have an immune response. Your body will respond and, and it can cause fevers, chills, muscle aches, those kinds of things. But when it comes to the comparison of saying the possibility of having severe COVID potentially going into the hospital because of it. You know, we've seen with children and especially our teenage children um, being affected by heart conditions after having COVID-19. Um, I think that the benefit just, in my opinion, really outweighs the risk. And again, I'm I'm not trying to push anyone to do anything that they're not trying to do, but I think our job as doctors overall is is to give people the information they can or that they need in order to make the best informed decision. And That's especially important when it comes to kids.
2: We're talking with Dr. Kyle Oland from Methodist Health System about the school year like no other. Not in our lifetimes have we sent our kids to school during a pandemic, much less one with a variant that seems to be running rampant. But school is merely a few weeks away, so this is a timely and pertinent conversation. It's also on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare, on all the major podcast players and more with Dr. Oland next on The Human Side of Healthcare.
0: Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller.
2: And welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Kyle Oland, Methodist Health System, about going back to school. And here's Steve with a question about another respiratory issue that has already on the radar this summer.
1: I was talking to an emergency room physician the other day, and this is what she told me. Steve, I've seen more RSV cases in June and July than I can ever remember at that time of the year. And for our listeners out there, one, would you explain to them what RSV is? And then would you give me your thoughts on what that emergency room doctor said? So RSV
6: is respiratory syncytial virus. It is probably one of the leading causes of respiratory illness of children, especially in young children, um, those that are in under two years old. So basically it's a, I would say to parents, it's a cold virus. Um, it's passed, you know, from coughing, sneezing, and just the same way that the flu or COVID is passed around. Um, RSV really commonly causes, like I said, respiratory illnesses. So your common cold types of symptoms, um, runny nose, congestion, sneezing, coughing. Um, But more importantly, in the younger children, especially under two, it can cause what's called bronchiolitis, which is inflammation of the small airways in the lungs that can cause wheezing, Um, and can cause problems with getting oxygen to the lungs. And often um, during the winter time, especially, we see peaks of RSV um, causing children to be hospitalized in in kind of large numbers. The emergency room doctor that you um, reference kind of is talking about something that a lot of pediatricians have been paying attention to and infectious disease doctors is this year we're having a peak of RSV smaller than a normal winter peak, but at a different season than what we're used to. I'll be honest, I'm not sure exactly why that's happening. I I suspect that it has something to do with the changes in our society since COVID happened. Um, And now we're having people kind of start to congregate again in large settings, which is always a place that you're going to see viral outbreaks happen. So I'm not sure exactly why we're seeing that peak in a different place, but It, you know, to me just kind of underscores the same basic hygiene things we think of. Have your kids wash their hands. If they're not feeling good, try and keep them home and away from others that they could infect.
1: You know, we've talked a lot about the COVID-19 vaccine, but we don't want to lose sight of other childhood vaccines. So as kids do prepare to return to school, let's not talk about COVID-19, but do you have thoughts on the other vaccines, when they should get them? if there are any they need to get boosters on, or any thoughts on other childhood vaccines? I, I think the most
6: important ones that I think of, there's a couple of different age groups. You've got your children that are going into kindergarten. There's usually basically a round of shots that your child's going to get that are kind of your pre-kindergarten vaccines. Um, and that's that's a kind of handful of vaccines that your child has already received when they were under two years old, but they're basically booster shots um, in order to get them ready for kindergarten. And that's measles, mumps, and rubella. That's the tetanus shot. It's um, getting your child vaccinated again against polio um, and the chicken pox. So that's always an important one when I'm seeing kids um, kind of before they start school. Um, getting them vaccinated and ready. And and those are required school vaccines for any public school in Texas. Um, Once you kind of get to the 11-year-old range, that's where we're starting to think about um, kind of another host of shots that are normally going. Um, and, that, and that's a boost on the tetanus shot um, that your child's been receiving since they were young. Um, a couple of other age-related vaccines that we think about in that age group at 11 is when you start giving your child your meningitis vaccine. And that's a bacteria that can cause meningitis um, and can potentially be fatal and is, is important to vaccinate children against. They get at 11 and at 16. Um, The other one that I talk to parents a lot about is the HPV vaccine. That's the human papillomavirus. And that is a vaccine that I call the cancer prevention vaccine. Um, The HPV is the leading cause of cervical cancer in in the world. Um, It's also a a large cause of throat cancer um, in men or women. Um, and so it's a very important vaccine and it's something that has been effective at lowering the rates of cervical cancer since it was introduced about 20 years ago. Um, and that's a shot that actually starts at nine. Um, but often I'm catching kids at 11, especially because they're coming in for other vaccines and we do the series to get them up to date on the HPV at that time. Um, probably the other thing that I think of is, is kind of your late teenagers, those that are at that 16 to 18 year old time and are getting ready maybe to go off to college. You get that second boost of the the meningitis shot. And another thing that I talk to parents about really important is there's actually a newer meningitis shot out called a meningitis B vaccine. Um, and that is especially important for kids that are planning to go to college. A lot of colleges these days are actually starting to require meningitis B vaccination in addition to kind of the older meningitis vaccine. Um, And that's really just because since we started vaccinating against meningitis years ago, that type of meningitis has gone down. Now meningitis B is kind of the most popular type of meningitis on college campuses. So that's another vaccine that you get around 16 to 18 in order to get covered for that. And the last one I always talk about is the flu shot. Um, I know that's kind of a yearly thing that we go through is making sure that everybody, not just children, are vaccinated against the flu, Um, recognizing even with all of the the things that have gone on with COVID, flu, especially pre-COVID, is just such a a huge risk to children, um, putting them in the hospital, even Um, causing children to die in the past, so always important every year to make sure that you're getting your child their flu vaccine.
1: Is there a vaccine that maybe you give to especially teenagers or before they go to college for hepatitis? So in terms of hepatitis, um, you would make sure
6: that you're getting your hepatitis B vaccines. And that's actually when they're young children. Um, And then hepatitis A is also before they turn 18 months. So I'm not aware of a hepatitis vaccine that they need after that. After kids kind of turn 18, you know, they're starting to become quote-unquote adults. There are some people that I recommend kind of checking um, to see if they... Uh, have immunity to hepatitis B, uh, and that's people who have liver disease or if they have diabetes um, or if they're, for some reason, going into a healthcare setting, maybe they're going to nursing school. But other than that, for um, just kind of your run-of-the-mill teenager, there's no extra hepatitis shot we have to do.
1: You know, uh, we've been going through COVID-19. People have been at home. You know, we've had shelter in place, the kids want to get back to school. They want to see their friends. All of this we know. With that, probably a lot of children's sleep schedules have been, for lack of a better term, kind of out of kilter. But as we prepare to go back to school, do you have any thoughts as a physician on how to get your kids back in the groove related to a sleep schedule?
6: Yeah, and that's a great question. And especially with my kind of teenage children. This is something that we're always talking about throughout the year, let alone going back to school. And I think what most parents see is during the summer months, you know, you're a little bit more lax about bedtime schedule, which is always normal. You know, you're spending more time at grandma and grandpa's, going out to movies, things like that. Um, And so it's very normal for a child who's used to having a bedtime at 9 p.m. to start going to bed as late as 11, midnight, some of these older teenagers may be staying up later. Really what I talk about is just kind of making a plan, going into and saying, hey, I know that school's going to start on this date maybe two weeks before you you plan to have school start. Let's start getting you back onto a school schedule. And that usually can just be a gradual thing. And especially if you plan it out, start to push back up bedtime, maybe an hour at a time, in order to allow your child to slowly get used to getting back to maybe they wake up at 5:30 most days or five, six kind of getting them back into that groove. As you mentioned, that way it's not such a, I guess, whiplash of going from that 12 PM school or summer bedtime to having a, a 8 PM school bedtime um, and kind of cutting some of that pain away when it comes to getting kids back to school.
1: You know, I know we're still in the summer. We're not done with pools. What do you think about drownings and pool safety, especially with children?
6: Oh, gosh. I, you know,
1: this has honestly nothing to
6: do with school, or maybe it does, but I always don't want to miss an opportunity to talk, especially in the summertime, about drowning prevention when it comes to children. And maybe that's completely off topic, but I'll take my chance and opportunity here. Um, Just knowing that it's July, I always, when I'm seeing kids in the office, you know, whether we're talking about going back to school or not, um, especially in the summertime, talking to kids about drowning prevention. And that goes for parents, just understanding that if you've got a child and they don't know how to swim, making sure that you've always got somebody that is the designated person that is watching that child or group of children. Um, Making sure that you know that floaties on the arms for kids that don't know how to swim are no substitute for an adult that's near them and really the only thing that can help a child swim when they get into a pool is a life jacket um, and so for my kind of pre-school age kids maybe they don't know how to swim well i'm always talking about pool safety in that if they're going to be around the pool you they need to be at arm's distance from you they need to be wearing a life jacket so that god forbid if they do go into the pool you're able to get them out. They're able to stay afloat um, and we're not going to have any kind of accidents or tragedies.
2: A big thanks to Dr. Kyle Olent from Methodist Health System. He is a pediatrician and is also board certified in both pediatrics and internal medicine. Great comments. Thank you for those. It's on our podcast, if you didn't catch it, Human Side of Healthcare. And when we come back, a heartwarming non-COVID story from Medical City McKinney about healthcare at its best. Next, on the human side of healthcare.
0: Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller.
1: And welcome back to the human side of healthcare. You know, many of you that have followed the human side of healthcare know that we initiated this program to really show what our hospitals are doing for the community, the good works they're doing to help people, and show that the hospitals do give back to help people improve their lives. Admittedly, COVID-19 interrupted that agenda, so we've had special programs on COVID-19. But from time to time, we come across extraordinary stories that really impact the lives Of many people, not only the patients, but their families. And that is going to be a story we're about to explore in this segment. It is one that is incredible. And you're going to learn how teamwork at our hospitals changes lives, and in many cases, saves lives. Here's Thomas with the story. Galen Johnson
2: was otherwise healthy. No sign of what was about to unfold, until one day he noticed a bump on his upper chest, and then on his side. He went to Medical City McKinney to find out what was going on, and after some imaging and biopsy, he had an answer he never would have expected.
7: Okay, officially um, diagnosed with uh, a mass on my chest. Uh, and a mass over here on my lymph nodes. And then after they did the mammogram, a couple of weeks later, I came back for a sonogram biopsy. And they, when they did the biopsy on that, they found out it was IDC breast cancer, they found out what the masses were.
2: The diagnosis? Male breast cancer. His oncologist and surgeon, Dr. Umar Butt.
8: When he came to our uh, office, he had palpable lymph nodes in his, in his uh, armpits and that was something that we were worried about and uh, that's one of the most important things that we, uh, you know, that, we, that we get concerned about when we're dealing with patients uh, with uh, breast cancer, especially in males. He had invasive ductal carcinoma, which is the most common uh, breast cancer that we see both in male and female. While
2: over 300,000 women are diagnosed with some form of breast cancer each year, it's a rare occurrence in men, at only around 2,500 cases per year. But Galen Johnson was suddenly a patient, navigating cancer in a healthcare system he knew nothing about. It was right at the beginning of his journey that he met Brandy Meyerhofer, an RN who was a navigator at Medical City McKinney.
9: Galen was diagnosed with invasive ductal carcinoma, which is the most common type of breast cancer in men and women. And he came into Solus understanding that this was probably not what he thought it was. It was a very uncommon situation, uh, a potential for male breast cancer. And um, he knew that he needed to get that biopsy done, and when, in working with him and working through that, once he got that biopsy and that diagnosis, he was ready for treatment. He was ready to get connected to a surgeon.
2: And this is why health systems across the country now employ navigators to assist patients by not only taking the mystery and intimidation out of the process, but also by being there as a friend and companion during the treatment journey.
9: So as a navigator, I come in alongside a patient, and I tell them, if you don't know who to call, please call me. I help link them to resources, support, answer questions, give them education around their diagnosis, barrier to their care. We help to iron that out along the way.
2: Galen and Brandy formed a unique bond, one that transcended his care, a bond that exemplifies the human side of healthcare.
9: He's someone's brother, uncle, dad, and how would I want them to be helped? Um, He and I had a good rapport from the very beginning. You know, it's a trusting relationship that nurses build with patients always, and it's no different with nurse navigation. So he trusted me and trusted the physicians, and, you know, he wants to get better. He wants to be treated. He wants to see this treated well. There are amazing physicians in the area who can give them the best treatment, the most up-to-date, evidence-based treatment, and it really is oftentimes very treatable. It's a hopeful diagnosis, and we have a great rapport. He'll text me information. Um, He texted me a selfie from uh, his medical oncologist chair for his first treatment, and that was really special. So we have a bond, I mean, um, and I do with a lot of my patients, but he's, he's a special guy for sure.
2: Galen's treatment needed to begin right away. Again, Dr. Umar Butt.
8: The biggest concern is spread because male uh, breast cancers tend to be very aggressive. Uh, So the first thing that we worry about is it going to the lymph nodes, which are the stations to which uh, cancer cells can uh, travel and end up in. Uh, The chances or the risk of having uh, breast cancer on the opposite side, on the other side, is 20 to 30 folds of the normal population in men. So in that case, uh, because of such a high chance of developing cancer, we want to make sure that down the line that does not happen. And that's the main reason uh, that uh, he underwent a double mastectomy, one on the side of which the cancer was and on the other side, which was the normal side. And Dr. Butt,
2: what is your message to men about the possibility of male breast cancer?
8: It's so rare to have these, uh, to see men having breast cancer. There's hardly two to three thousand uh, patients a year that are diagnosed in the U.S. Uh, so basically, awareness is the most important thing. I think you know, just sending out the message that breast cancer in men, in men exists. That's very important, and that's what you know I think uh, will make more men aware of uh, the possibility of that happening.
2: For Galen, the process had just begun.
7: And then from that point on, things kind of moved very quick and rapidly. Within a week or so, I was in Dr. Butt's office and scheduling a, a, a surgery. And they ended up we decided to do a double set mastectomy because just do a preemptive on the right side because it's it's common when men get it in one. Very almost always moves to the other side. And then after surgery, they said it was stage three because it was so, so much of my lymph nodes.
2: And Galen also had genetic testing done, and his why was about as big as it gets.
7: My son and grandkids, so they would know what to do. So they could be proactive and not let it get as far as it got on me.
2: And from a guy who previously didn't think much about a bump here and there, What is your message to men now?
7: It happens don't be stubborn about it. If you feel something different or unusual, get to the doctor, have them make a decision. Just don't think it'll go away, because it won't. It'll grow and grow and get worse. I think it's important for men to get screened for breast cancer because even though it's very, very rare, it can be very, very deadly in men because men are stubborn by nature and they let it go too long, like I did, and it becomes stage three or stage four, and then you really have problems with the battle. If you can catch it early, it's a simple thing to take care of. But if you wait and wait and wait, it's just gonna get worse. It's not gonna go away. You just swallow your pride and go get checked out.
2: And how was your experience with Brandy by your side at Medical Center McKinney? It
7: was a great experience. The doctors, the nurses, they were phenomenal in my treatment and care of me. Um, Brandy's a godsend. She's just been there every time I needed to call talk to someone. I love her to death. She's my angel. Sorry.
2: And this story wouldn't be complete without asking. So Kalen, what's your outlook now?
7: It's golden. I know I'm going to get through this. I actually am so thankful that every day when I wake up, that I've got another day to enjoy, to do the things that I love, to see the people that I love, and don't take them for granted.
2: And that is the human side Of healthcare.
1: Steve? And Thomas, how true that is the human side of healthcare. We really appreciate you being with us today. If you have not been vaccinated, please consider it. We're not going to preach to you, but we have got so many people in our hospitals with COVID 19 that have not been vaccinated. So, think about it, give it some serious thought, and we'll see you back here next week on the human side of healthcare.